All right, and it looks like we are ready to get started. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Frada. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Trisha. Very happy to have everyone back for our last session in this series uh, that, that we have been studying together, Alter Ego, Isaac Abraham, and Sarah in the Biblical Narrative uh, with Rabbi David Silber, the Founder and Dean of Drisha. We have been working through this material for the past four or five weeks together, and uh, this evening or this morning session is going to have us conclude by looking a bit more at chapter 21, the story of Abraham sending Hagar and Yishmael away, uh, and then continuing into the Akedah in chapter 22. So we are going to be looking at those together. Uh, we will be doing a screen share. And for folks who want to follow along at home, you're also certainly welcome to uh, welcome to read along on your own screen or out of your own Tanakh. We always appreciate it if folks are able to keep their video on so that we have the ability to look around and get a sense of who's in the room with us, be able to imitate some of that in-person energy. We also appreciate it if folks are able to be careful to keep themselves on mute if they are not chiming in to ask a question just so that we can avoid any background noise or distractions. And if you do chime in, please uh, take a look and, and try to be careful to remute yourselves when you're done. We also will be pausing at various points for questions and answers, but if you wanna chime in in the meantime, please feel free to use the chat. If you're following us on Facebook Live, feel free to leave a comment there and we will be able to use that to generate a little discussion throughout as well in addition to those points where we're going to pause for a bigger set of questions and answers. Other than that, if you have any particular tech questions or behind the scenes needs, please feel free to send me a direct message uh, through the chat and I will be happy to uh, try to help out with any of that. And other than that, I think we are good to go. Rabbi Silver, I think we can go. Okay, great, thank you, thank you, Michael. Okay, so let's just continue now and finish up with chapter 21. Chapter 21 is the banishment, among other things, the banishment of Hagar and Yishmael. And uh, Avram does not want to send, so he doesn't want to send Yishmael away. It's clear. The matter was very evil, very evil, uh, very bad, uh, concerning his son. Hagar apparently is not his primary concern, but, but as far as he's Yishmael is concerned, he doesn't want to do it, and God steps in. God says, Obey or listen to everything that she says. Yitzhak is the covenantal heir. Uh, yes, uh, Yishmael will be blessed. I'll make him a nation. He's your son, after all. And Avram, uh, after God's uh, intervention, uh, follows what God says to do. And that's on verse number 14. Uh, he gets up in the morning and he takes bread, he takes food, one might say, and a jug of water, places it upon Hagar, in other words, and, and, the, and the boy, and he sends, he sends her away. That is to say, she is now the responsible parent. What initially started as a plan by Sarah in chapter 16, that she and uh, Avram would be the parents, as it were, of this child, Sarah dropped out in chapter 16. 
And Avram seems to, as the essential parent, drops out in chapter 21. Okay. It's up to Hagar. And the what we saw last week was the way the Torah describes Hagar's care for this child. She gets lost in the desert, and then she casts the child under some shrubs, she sits far away and cries, and she says, I don't want to see this, this boy die. She says, and she cries. And then God, through the agency of the Malach, uh, responds. And the response is interesting. Uh, the response, first of all, is don't be afraid, Altiri. That's one thing that this uh, messenger, this angel says, Altiri. Um, but in the, even in the consolation of Hagar, there's a kind of reprimand as well. Malach Hagar, what's your problem? What's with you? Right? Uh, which is kind of critique of, of sorts. And the critique seems to be, first of all, the boy over there, the one that you place far away, Bashev Husham. Kumi there's a critique of that you put him far away, you're not with him. And the other point that we emphasize uh, is that the Torah says, that God heard the cry of the boy, but the Torah never said the boy was crying. The Torah said, she's crying. So God hears the cry of the nar, suggests that God hears the cry of the nar, but is less interested in the cry of, uh, of uh, Hagar, because she, we are told, is lifting up her voice and crying. So there is a critique over here, and the critique is based, first of all, on a lack of faith in the prior promise. And the critique is also a function of, you don't leave the suffering person alone, and especially one for whom you are responsible. And she is responsible for the child. Somehow shikma, they give the shechem, and as someone mentioned last week, we have in English the same expression to shoulder responsibility. Coming from the Chumash, and it's about taking responsibility. And then there was something else. And I wanted to begin with the something else. And that is that the Torah says, that God opened her eyes. Uh, that's in verse number 19. God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water, the Ermayim. And she goes and she gets water from the well and she gives the boy to drink. So the expression, is an interesting expression. God opened her eyes in contradistinction, for example, to what we have in the next chapter, the Akedah, where there the Torah twice mentions in connection with Abraham. He lifted up his eyes and he sees something that's not necessarily easy to see. For example, the first instance in verse number four of chapter 22, he saw the place from a distance. So he's able to see from a distance. And over here, we also have Hagar sitting. She sits from afar. But in the next chapter, Avram sees from afar, and it doesn't say God opened Abraham's eyes. It doesn't say that. It twice says in chapter 22 that Abraham lifted up his own eyes and he saw. So the ability to see is one of the distinguishing features of the Akedah, 
both in verse four and again in verse 13. And he sees, the second time he sees the ram afterwards or behind him, achar, entangled in the brush, nechaz basvach, and he understands on his own what to do, this Abraham. So he goes and he gets the aisle and he brings it as a sacrifice instead of his son, tachat beno. That is to say, he reclaims his son through the means of the sacrifice. But the point over here is he does that through his own perception. It's not that God opens his eyes. And that's a very interesting, I think a very important distinction between both between chapters 21 and 22. And more broadly, it touches upon what we saw earlier in chapter 16 in conjunction with Hagar. Because in chapter 16, that's the first Hagar story. That's where she looked, takes Sarah very lightly or she considers Sarah of little worth because she's pregnant with a child and Sarah after many years has not born a child. But take out Gevirta Bienera. So Sarah complains to Abraham who says to Sarah, do whatever you want. And Batanela Sarai Vatigrahmi Panela and Sarah afflicted her, abused her, mistreated her, whatever. Inui. It's a harsh word. It's a harsh behavior. And uh, so Hagar runs away. If we look at chapter 16, and at the time we pointed this out to some extent, and I want just to repeat this, that Hagar runs away in chapter 16. And the, the angel finds Hagar in chapter 16, in verse number seven, this is chapter 16, verse number seven. The angel found her, is a spring, a spring of water. It's a very striking verse because the word ayin can mean a spring, but the word ayin also means an eye. And twice in this verse, it says the word ein or ayin, ein hamayim, on the road to Shur. But what does what Shur mean in Biblical Hebrew? See. To see, of course. To see. So it's all about vision. The angel encounters a Hagar, the servant of Sarai, in one might say, and the verse shouts out at us, in a place of vision. And the angel then speaks to Hagar in chapter 16 and first asks the question, from where are you coming and where are you going? It's very similar to the question that the angel says to Hagar in chapter 21, uh, uh, what's with you? Can be, can be seen as, it's not actually, the angel knows. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And that's already a critique. Where you're coming from means maybe you should, should have stayed where you, where you were. And where are you going? Those are the questions. And Hagar answers in verse number eight, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. That's actually very interesting. She gives an answer, does Hagar, to the question, but she only answers half the questions. Because there were two questions. Where are you running from and where are you going to? 
And what's curious that the answer is only where are you running from? But there's no answer where I'm running to because in fact, she's not running to any place. She's running away from. And I think we can be sympathetic to her running away. But in fact, uh, the angel is gonna say to her, you should not run away. And especially since you have no place to run to. So what's interesting, and why is she running away? She's running away because in chapter 16, it says, Vatanera Sarai, that Sarai oppressed her, mistreated her, Inui, that's found in verse number, uh, verse number six. And the Torah plays with the word Inui. The Torah plays with the word Inui in verse number eight, uh, verse number seven, I'm sorry. It's a, there's a play on the word Inui on one hand and the word Ayin on the other. Not that the two words mean the same thing, they're two different words, but they sound the same. And when looking at the biblical text, it's not just what the word means, it's also what the word looks like, what the word sounds like. So, and the in the place of Ayin, after the Inui, and we, where are you running from? Where are you going? And Hagar says, I'm running away from Sarai. And in verse number nine, so the angel says a strange thing, strange to us. Go back to your mistress, says the angel. Submit yourself to the Inui. Accept the Inui. Inui is, a, generally speaking, a terrible thing. It's mistreatment, often with a, has a sexual side to it. It's very basic, basic violation of somebody. But the angel says over here, go, and ex, go back and accept it. And of course, when after the angel says this, there's no response. So the very next verse begins the same way, as we studied. So verse number 10 begins the same as verse nine, even though there's no response. So one would have expected that verse number 10 does not begin with but the reason it begins with that, and there actually is more than one reason in general in the Bible that you have consecutive introductions of a speaker, even though the speaker continues to speak. It can be multiple explanations. But over here, I think the best of the explanations is that you have it in a place where a response is anticipated or hoped for, but is not forthcoming. She says nothing. So the Malach then makes a second statement. The first thing the Malach says, speaks for God, except the Inui, no response. So, I'll greatly increase your offspring. There'll be met too many to count. And that language, is exactly the language that we have in chapter 15 in the, in the covenant, in the previous chapter. What God takes Abraham, count the stars. So here the angel is sweetening the pot, one might say, and saying, you know something? Go back, accept the Inui, and you should know that if you accept the Inui, it is, it's part of a great blessing. It's not just go accept torture for torture's sake. But if you accept it, you're going to accept it, you can be covenantal. After all, the three-part commitment in chapter 15 to the covenant, our responsibility was to be a stranger, a gear, 
was to be enslaved in Eved and to have Inui. Well, Hagar, Hegemuresh, is a Ger. She's the Egyptian woman, Hagar, or Hagar as we call her. She's a slave. She's a Shifra, the female counterpart to Eved. All she's missing is the Inui. So the angel is offering her a covenantal opportunity. Go back and accept the Inui. Now, most people would probably say what Hagar says. That's not my thing. I'm not into torture or being tortured. It's not for me. Okay, we understand it perfectly. Makes total sense. Then you're not covenantal in this book. You have to be willing to accept it. And even though the angel sweetens the pot, fine. So now the angel sweetens the pot. Now the angel says something else in verse 11. So the angel says, go back, you have a child. And the uh, God has heard your suffering. Shema Hashem means the Inuit that you've already had has been accepted. And to that extent, you have a blessing. But since she has rejected the Inuit, she can't have the covenantal blessing. So chapter 16 is about essentially Hagar being offered a covenantal opportunity and decided not to accept it because of the price. The price is too high. The price is too high for most people. And the price of Inui is something she doesn't want to accept. Okay, you don't accept it. You did suffer already. You're, this child is, you're bearing Abraham's child. But you're gonna hinach hara. It's interesting. She already is pregnant. What do you mean hinach hara v'yoladet bein? She's already pregnant. Sounds like she's not pregnant yet. All kinds of midrashim. But the simple meaning is, you became pregnant initially as Sarah's surrogate. But now I'm telling you something else. The pregnancy is not as Sarah's surrogate. The pregnancy is your pregnancy. The child is your pregnancy. You're gonna name the child. The naming is an act of the parent. So it's going to be your child and Abraham's child, but not Sarah's child. And Sarah at this point is out of the picture. Okay, we studied all that. Very important. She was offered the opportunity. She rejects it. Okay, fine. And then the Malach continues to speak about Yishmael, it's a para Adam, etc. And now as we continue to read, we have Hagar's response, which is very relevant to our chapter. It says, She said, you are a seeing God. She talks to the angel who represents God. You are a seeing God. And she says, in the difficult uh, expression, what she said, Have I not continued to translate, very difficult verse, have I not continued to see, even here, the one who has seen me? or after I have seen, do I not continue to see? And therefore she called the well, the Be'er, the well in which she finds herself, Be'er Rachai Ro'i, the well of the living one who sees me. Okay, so she names this place Be'er Rachai Ro'i. Now Be'er Rachai Ro'i, someone asked me during the week in the email uh, about Be'er Rachai Ro'i, and how it factors or figures in the book of Breshit. So I want to say a word about Be'er Lachai Ro'i. And the first point about Be'er Lachai Ro'i is that actually Hagar naming the well 
the well of the one who sees me, okay? And we know there have been many seeing words. We had the word ayin, einamayim, awa ayin, sure is to see. Uh, the whole story begins with Vatera ki harata, when she saw that she was pregnant and she's experienced pregnancy, perceives her mistress became light in her eyes. But when you look at the story, actually, and you talk about the God of chapter 16, uh, there's something very strange about the description of God in chapter 16. The verse that we just read in verse number 11, you will name the child Yishmael, Kishama Hashem Elanyer, for God has shama, has paid heed, has heard your suffering. Shama Hashem Elanyer. And that expression, Shama Hashem Elanyer, is a very striking expression. Why is that a striking ex ex expression? It's a striking expression because, because only suffering typically in the Bible does not take the verb to hear. It takes, I won't say exclusively, it may be exclusively, I haven't checked all the instances, but basically only takes the verb to see. The first thing God said to Moshe, the burning bush, after introducing God to Moshe, right? What do we say in our daily prayer service? See our only. It always takes to see, the verb to see. So in chapter 16, what is curious is, they're all the seeing words, and Hagar said, the God who sees me. But actually, the text of chapter 16 never said that God sees Hagar. The text of chapter 16 says God heard Hagar. It's interesting. It's not the God who sees, the God who hears. And that's very striking, actually. So actually, Hagar is mis misunderstanding or misrepresenting the God. God is not ro'er, it's her only. God is hearing, hearing. The idea of hearing is one that dominates Ushmoa, Yishmael Shmaticha. When it comes to Yishmael, it's not about perception or vision. It's about responding to someone in distress. But it's very striking that we have the verb to see, which is really unusual. I don't know if we never have it any other place, but it's rare. And typically, we have it in the, in the, by the way, in the Passover Haggadah, in the Passover Haggadah, there we have, actually, it's very striking. In Arami Yovei chapter 26 of Dvarim, what does it say? Ve'ereyo otanu ha-metrim ve'yanunu, ve'yanu o'reinu avodah kasha, ve'yishma Hashem, right? What's the pasuk over there? Ve'nitzaku Hashem o'rohei avoteinu, ve'yar et onyeinu v'yet amoreinu v'yet lachatzeinu. We cried out to the God of our ancestors, and God saw onyeinu. You would expect to hear God heard. Because well, so we cried out. No, God saw. So only takes the verb to see. And my point over here is that when you come to our chapter, chapter 21, back to 21, God opened her eyes 
and she saw, the idea that God opens her eyes means basically she's not a person who sees. And the thing that she does see after God opens her eyes, that the air, the well, once again, we have a well, both in 16 and 21, it sounds like the well is always there. Sometimes you see things that are not in your own domain, your own realm. Abraham sees the mountain, which is far away. He sees it from a distance. And sometimes, and often in life, the answer is right there under our nose, right there. But we don't see it. Sometimes it's too close that we don't see it. So the point here of Hagar not seeing in the sense of not understanding, misunderstanding God's relationship to her. Yes, uh, God says, the angel says, go back because God has heard your suffering. That means you won't suffer anymore. Go back, go back, and you're going to have a, a, a great reward. That's the promise. The promise is there. But it's not a covenantal promise because she doesn't she doesn't want this particular blessing. She has other blessings. Yishmael is very powerful. So was Asaph, very successful. The way people measure success, the great success story is Asaph. You know, it's one thing to own a big company. This guy owns it, owns a whole country. He travels around with an army, the 400 men with Asaph. And Asaph who say here, Asaph owns a country. Not just, not just a billionaire, he owns a country. He's the success story. His brother Jacob has something. He offers his gift to Asaph. What do I need your pittance for? What are you going to give me? You know, I have everything. Well, I have plenty, he says. You're going to give me some 200 animals or something? I, I, I own a country. So by me how do you measure success is the question. When you measure it in dollars and cents, Asaph is the big winner. Yishmael is very powerful. Yaakov's not. So, but that's how the book of Breshit measures success. It has a different measure of success. It measures it covenantally. So that's the Be'er Lachai Roi. What's interesting is that Be'er Lachai Roi figures in two other places in the book of Breshit. One of them is in chapter 24 and one is in chapter 25. So in chapter 24, that's the story of the marriage of Yitzhak and Rivka. We're going to say that in the next series that we uh, that we uh, study, those who want to continue uh, taking this particular set of sessions. And I'm going to be adding a session in the summer. I'm going to be teaching in the summer as well. Additional session in the summer, Sunday morning, same time, same station. And we'll start with the Akedah and we're going to go forward, some new material. In any event, in chapter 24, the marriage of Rivka to Yitzchak, so the servant is sent out to find a wife for Yitzchak. Avram sends the servant out. Rivka is coming back. The servant uh, manages to, uh, get to get the family to allow Rivka to leave. Rivka says, I want to go. And the very end of chapter 24, it says that Rivka is traveling back uh, together with, uh, together with uh, the servant and, the, and all that. And her nursemaid, at the end of chapter 24, it says the following. It says that Yitzchok had gone out to the field. This is verse number 60, uh, 63. Actually, start with verse 62. Yitzchok was coming back 
from the vicinity of Be'er Lachai Roi. What do you know? Yisra comes from Be'er Lachai Roi. Uhu Yoshev Be'eret Hanegev. He's dwelling in the, in, the, in the southern region. And it says, Vayetze Yitzchak or Suach Basodeh Lifnot Erev. And Yitzchak had come out to converse, was Suach Basodeh, to converse in the field before evening. Was Suach Basodeh. It's interesting, was Suach Basodeh, because we have an expression in the book of Breshit, Siach Hasodeh, that which grows in the field, in the, in the creation story. The beginning of chapter two, Vuchosiach Hasodeh Terim Yebaaretz. So Wasuch means to converse. The Midrash, the Agadah, uh, the Talmud, speaks about Isaac praying in the field, a sikha, not just to converse with people, not just to connect to the siach of the, the earth, the, that which grows, but Wasuach to converse with God. I'll come back to that in a second. He lifts up his eyes. That's an expression we have at the Akedah. And behold, he sees camels coming. Rivka's returning for the camels. Because Abraham had sent out the camels laden with goods to secure a wife. And Yitzchok is in the field. He comes from Be'er Lachai from the well of the seeing God. And he lifts up his own eyes and he sees, and he sees the camels coming. And the next verse is Vatisa Rivka and Rivka lifts up her eyes, Vatera et Yitzchak, and she sees Yitzchak. And Vatipo Gamal, she alights from the camel. I want just to dwell for a moment on these two verses about Be'er Lachai Roi. So Be'er Lachai Roi is interesting. If the name was, of the place was given by, in fact, Hagar, she spoke about, because uh, God had opened her eyes and shown her where there's water, and she named the Be'er, the well, which she was able to see when God opened her eyes, the, the well of the, the living God who sees me. And now Yitzchak is identified as coming from that place. And it's interesting, Yitzchak is identified with it. And the question is, is this identical to the identification of Hagar slash Yishmael, or is this different? And it strikes me that it's different because here, uh, first of all, the idea of the well and Yitzchak are deeply connected. Yitzchak is a person who digs wells. It's one of the things that he does. When we continue our study, we'll get to that in chapter 25. Uh, Yitzchak is a well digger, 25, 26. And secondly, What's interesting is he comes from the well of the, of the living God who sees in the very, very next verse, he himself sees. He lifts up his eyes and he sees like the Akeda. And not only that, just to demonstrate how this is quite nuanced, in verse 25, we have Yitzchak lifting up his eyes and seeing. And in verse uh, 64, the following verse, we have Rifka lifting her eyes. 63 is Yitzchak lifting his eyes and seeing the camels coming. In 64, and Rifka lifted up her eyes and she sees Yitzchak. So what's interesting is that Yitzchak on one hand is one who sees and he sort of 
reflective of the God who sees, on the other hand, Rivka and Yitzchak don't see the same way, because when Yitzchak lifts up in eyes and sees, he sees camels. Now, of course, he may, he understands presumably that the camels are returning, and returning hopefully with his, with his, with his bride. On the other hand, the Torah didn't say he lifted up his eyes and he saw Rivka. It says he lifted up his eyes and he saw camels. So the, Rivka has one level of perception. Yitzhak has a different level of perception. She sees him. Uh, he can't see her. She's, she sees better than he does. On the other hand, on the other hand, he does see. So the entire question of the, Yitzhak's ability to perceive, we know that when he gets older in chapter 27, when he became old, he doesn't see anymore. So the whole question of to what extent can Yitzchak see is a very good question, but it certainly is in contradistinction to what we know about Hagar. Uh, Yitzchak is, unlike Hagar, reflecting the God who in fact does see. But Hagar in chapter 16 speaks about the seeing God, but the Torah says, no, it's the hearing God, but not the seeing God. And in chapter 21, Apart from the fact that she gets lost, her eyes have to be opened by God. So my point is that the very same place, depending on the context and depending on who is connected to it, carries with it a different meaning. In the case of Yitzchak, I think it's an accurate reflection of who Yitzchak is. And in fact, uh, it's even more, a little more complicated because uh, what what God, what God allows Yitzchak to do, Yitzchak is not necessarily somebody who sees perfectly. Yitzchak needs help, and he gets help from his father, from his wife, and from God, who allows him to see. So let's leave it at that for now, and I'll stop and take comments or questions. But it's interesting how this very term, can have more than one significance depending on the... Uh, on, on the context. When it comes to Hagar, she doesn't see, and she doesn't perceive, she doesn't understand, and there's also a lack of faith, I think, in the, in the promise. She presumes that this child is going to die, and she doesn't want to be with him. What does she say? I don't want to see him die. So the person that closes her eyes, or his eyes, and doesn't want to see the world, right, which is totally, we almost sympathize with it in a sense. Look at the world. There are a lot of things you don't want to see. But, it's, but in fact, I once remarked about one of my Rebbe's who was very opposed to studying uh, uh, other texts, texts of the ancient Near East. And uh, he was opposed on educational grounds. Don't study the texts of the ancient Near East, the uh, Gilgamesh and all that. When you study it, if you're not prepared for it, it shakes you up. You see, the Torah is not the only account of the flood. There are loads of accounts of the flood. There are all kinds of parallels in the past. And his, his solution was, don't ever get involved in it. Don't, don't ever study it. And I once remarked, not to him directly, but you could, you could make a decision to study it or not to study it. But just remember one thing. The texts are still there, whether you study them or not. It's an important point. The fact of the matter is, she doesn't want to see. Okay, we understand it. But it comes together with something else of not wanting to see, actually. 
coming from the person who actually doesn't cannot see. Those two things are probably connected. Okay, I'll stop and take comments or questions now, and then we'll move forward with the end of chapter 21. We'll start chapter 22. Yes. The Akeda is filled with worries of seeing. Yes, it is. We'll get there. From beginning to end. Okay. Yes, it is. It is filled with words of seeing, and even a word which actually is connected to seeing, though it's not dictionary connected, and that is the word to uh, to uh, to to fear. The word yare and the word gerot are not actually the same word, but they often come together. Uh, often come together, and the point of the akeda toyadati ki himata. So the Akeda is filled from beginning to end with, there are seven such words at the Akeda. And as I pointed out last week, and we'll get to it when we get to the Akeda, and I'm not sure we'll get there today, but the, but the contradistinction between the contrast between Hagar's inability to see, her eyes have to be open, but Avram's ability to see, both in verse four and 13, and the very name of the place, Hashem Yireh, Hashem Yamer Hayom, and the goal is which is not the same word as seeing, but is often in the Bible connected. Uh, for example, Abimelech says to Abraham in chapter 20, what did you see? To which Abraham answers, his first answer, you have often in the Bible, uh, often in the Bible, uh, you have it, by the way, in the Passover Haggadah too, Right? means great fear. means revelation. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so, we, when we get to the Akeda, not next week, but when we get to the Akeda, to the next set of classes, we'll be dealing with that. We'll hopefully start it today. Anybody else? Thank you. Two, two, two words, two words one, one, of which, one of which I can connect, the other I can't. Um, Hagar throws the kid under a sicha. Right. Yeah. Well, we've just uh, we've just seen two sichot connected, you know, yeah. the Bereshit, you know, the connection back to Bereshit, but I don't get the, the Hagar with sicha, but maybe it's just underlining, uh, I, I don't know. Right. It could be just whatever, it could be a literary effect. In other words, it's a good question. I'm not sure that there's a deeper connection to that. The way it works, and the, the Midrashim do this very often, there are core connections. And then there are other literary links which aren't necessarily in the text per se. The Medrash does this all the time. Medrash has 15 connections. Five of them are really literary connections. And then the Medrash tends to add other things as well and to, to underscore the connectedness. So I don't know. That's an interesting point about the Siach, yeah. Okay, the other is Gama, is, is, is uh, Yitzchak is definitely connected to, to camels somehow, to, go, to right. Gamal. I mean, his life right. starts, there's a Gamal party. So this is so this book ends that I would think that first Gamal he's done being a kid. Okay, could be so, right? But you dawa yelva ye gamal in the chapter 21. Yes, that's also interesting. When we get to the story of Yitzhak and Rifka, maybe we'll touch base on, on that on that uh, connection. If that connection is there, we'll see. There's a lot here. Does anybody else have something to say? And I would think yes, yes. Uh, uh, there is a in in the, in this context uh, with uh, Yitzchok, uh, there is a dialogue, dialogic aspect to it. Both that there is somebody else who also sees 
and that he's out in the field and he's having a sikha. It's not an individual isolated person having the experience. Uh, in the case of Agar, it is her, it, God is there or the Malach is there, but she doesn't have a companion with whom to share the experience. Okay. I, I'll tell you something interesting since you mentioned the Sikha and the Sadeh, that the, 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 the Talmud actually, I don't think it's the Pshat, but it's very interesting. The Talmud says that Yitzchak was Suach Basadeh that he's praying. With note Erev, he's praying the prayer in the late afternoon, which we call Mincha. And what is, what is driving, you know, when you have something like that, you always ask the question, what is driving this, 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 this Midrashic statement? And often it's more than one thing that's driving it. But let me just say one thing about Yitzchak, which is certainly true in the Chumash, even if you don't accept that Sikha is in fact prayer. But what the Medrash is picking up on, Isaac went out in the field to pray and he lifts up his eyes and he sees the camels coming. And I think what the Medrash imagines is that Isaac is, what's he praying for? Probably praying that the servant went out on a difficult assignment to find a wife from a distant country. And Isaac goes out to the field, maybe to pray that, and he looks up and he sees the camels coming. In other words, there's something about Isaac, which is when he prays, God is answering even before he prays, one might say, you have it later in, in, in chapter 25. It's almost like he hasn't finished his prayer yet. He's still in the Mulash which speaks to something very powerful about Yitzchak, which is in a funny kind of way, and maybe it's not a funny kind of way. He's the most connected to God. There's nobody like Yitzchak. He's, the connection is so deep that even as he's talking, God is responding. And we have to bear that in mind when we study more about Yitzchak, who's, I would say, very underrated uh, character in the, in, the, in the Chumash. It's true, the main, the main, the main heroes of Sefer Breshit are Yaakov, number one, and Abraham, number two. But Yitzchak's incredibly important. And there's a certain connectedness he has which nobody has, nobody, uh, not his father, not his son. Excuse me? Because he never left the country. He's the only one who never right. left. He the never country. leaves the country. He was brought up as a sacrifice. Uh, part may be a personality. Part may be his his particular role is to is to actually be the recipient of the of the of the uh, of, of, of the blessings to connect Yaakov to Abraham. It could be many different. Uh, explanations, and they don't contradict each other either. Uh, many true and good explanations for it, but I simply point out, we'll see this later actually, how the Chumash emphasizes this, that there's something about Yitzchak which is so deep, he's so blessed basically, he's so connected, and no one shares that. Now the connectedness, like everything in life, comes with another side to it. If you're so connected, if you're always standing in God's presence, then you are not necessarily equipped to deal with other situations where you suddenly find yourself not in God's presence. So we'll get to all that later on. But what's driving the Medrash, perhaps, is exactly this point. He goes out to pray, and there's the, the answer's already there. He hasn't finished his prayer yet, but he saw it, and he lifts up, and what do you know? They're coming already. Here they are. So he's 
his prayers have been answered, one might say, even as he hasn't finished praying. So that's something about Rosuach Basadeh. We'll come back to that later on as well. So anybody I just, actually, actually, Siach Basadeh just occurred to me that the connection of Siach to, 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 to the connection to creation story is that Isaac, in fact, is a creation of God. He's a, he's a miracle baby. So he is, he is an element of creation. That's a good point. And actually, there's even more to it than that, I think. But that's a very good point. Yes, there is no doubt that he is, as you call it, a miracle baby. God is his father, as it were. Uh, that is clear in the text that we talked about that. And there's also a connection which, you know, some of the Hasidic texts, they talk about this going out to the field to pray, seeing oneself as part of God's, as, 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 as part of creation, which is a, a very powerful idea. You know, in New York City, you don't really feel that. But if you go out to the mountains, to the country, you feel that you're part of, you're part of creation, part of something bigger. Uh, okay, we'll get to these things later when we focus more on Yitzchak. Let me just get back now to the end of chapter 21. Can we make a statement, a question? We'll begin with, uh, if we get there today, we'll start with the Akedah. I'm not going to have a class next week, but when we have the next set of classes, we'll pick up, we'll start with the Akedah. And then afterwards, I hopefully will we'll get to Yaakov, which is going to be, you know, I haven't taught Yaakov in a long time. And that's very rich. So, uh, okay. But then at the end of chapter 21, so at the end of chapter 21 is when Abimelech comes out with his, with his, uh, with his uh, commander of the army, Pichos Hatzvo, and says to Abraham, Say, God is with you and all that you do. I see that God is with you. I mentioned at the end of last week that what's driving Abimelech, I think, among other things, is the end of verse number 21, which is that Ishmael, who's called earlier Pera Adam, wild ass of a man, Yadol Bakol Yad Kobo, his hand against all and all against him, he's living in verse number 21, he dwells in the desert of Paran, which is not very far from the land of the Philistines. So you have him on your border and you want to make sure that you're not going to have too much trouble with Abraham's descendants, especially since you've mistreated Abraham and you took his wife. So Abimelech goes to Abraham with his general. He wants to make a treaty. I see that God is with you in all that you do. The Atah, and now, So he wants Abraham to swear that he will be kind and he will be loyal, not just to Abimelech, but to Abimelech's descendants, my kith and kin. Uh, all the kindness, the chesed that I showed you, strange, strange concept of chesed, right? Took his wife. Um, and with, with me and with my land. So Abraham, I've really been so good to you. I want you to swear that you will be good, not just to me, but to my descendants. And Abraham says to Abimelech, I will swear. Fine. And now we have the story that we had uh, mentioned earlier that Abraham rebukes Abimelech. He says, by the way, your servants are stealing my water. Asher and it sort of mirrors what Abimelech did in terms of Abraham himself. You stole my wife, and now you're stealing uh, the water. Your servants have stolen the water. Whether Abraham is being 
uh, discreet and not saying you stole my water. Says the servants did it, but you're the king. And of course, Avimelech is the Avimelech answer, which we expect, namely the gum. I know I know nothing about it. He says, "How come you didn't tell me earlier?" And we'll take care of it tomorrow. These are all the standard answers. That's the Avimelech. He never changes. So uh, then Avram sets aside seven of the flock. This is found in verse number twenty-seven. They make a covenant, so they have a covenant, a breed, an agreement, an arrangement, and then Avram sets aside. Seven kvaso, seven yews. So here we have, we had the word shvua twice, and now we have the word sheva. Sheva and shvua are connected to each other. And Avimelech says, what are these seven yews uh, that you set aside? Why do you set the seven levadana separate? Why do you separate the seven from the others? Because it says that Avram gave Avimelech tzono bakar. So what are these seven that have been set apart? Says Avram to Avimelech, Sheva Kvaso Tikach Miyodei, take these seven, Ba'avur you should be for me a witness, Ki This well, the other wells, your, your, your servants, whatever, steal my water, but this particular well, you are witness that this is my well, and I'm here, these are the seven that you take. I'm giving you Sheva, but in return, this well is mine. And then the Torah says, Therefore, the place is called Be'er Sheva. For there they swore. And it's funny, because that's not what you expect the Torah to say, actually. You're expecting the Torah to say, therefore, the place is called Be'er Sheva because he gave him Sheva Kvasot. Is that what you expect? But no. The Torah says, Kisham Nishba'ushnehem, for the third time, we have the word Shavua, the oath. They both swear. So it's a mutual swearing, Shnehem, because Avimelech had said to Avram, I want you to swear to me. He's very big on the other guy swearing to him, is Avimelech. He's less big on me swearing to somebody else. So Avram says, No, no. We have an agreement. And these Sheva are yours, but in return, you have to attest to the fact that this Beersheva is mine. And the place is called Beersheva. Avimelch did, in fact, swear. Now, he's not a guy who keeps his oath, so later he's going to violate the oath. That's one of the primary uh, qualities of Avimelch. He's not an oath keeper, but he does take the oath. And here it's very interesting, by the way, jumping to Yitzchak for a moment, because Beersheva figures in the Yitzchak narrative as well. Where is that? So the, that's in chapter 26. In chapter 26, at the end of chapter 26, um, where is it? I'm not finding this. Uh, yes, towards the end of 26. It's Vayal uh, Misham Beersheva. The, the chapter 26, Isaac is digging wells. First, he digs up the wells that his father had dug, and the Philistines have stopped up the wells. And then he starts digging his own wells. Isaac has been kicked out by the, by the Philistines. They actually deport him. Avimelech kicks out Yitzchak. 
after his speech about be kind to my descendants, that's the way he operates. Okay, fine. He goes to Beersheba. And this takes place right after Isaac dug a well and there's no fight about it. The last well that Isaac digs, which is chapter 26, verse number 22, it's called Rechovot. He says, this is it, there's no fight. This well finally, everybody agrees, is Isaac's well. From there, Yitzchak goes to Beersheba. And God speaks to Isaac in Beersheba. I'll leave that up for now. And Avimelech once again shows up in chapter 26, verse 26. For Avimelech, Allah, I love Migwar, Fachuzat me reyeu, Ufichol Sartrao. So he comes once again with his counselor, and he comes with Pichol, once again, the army, the army fellow. Pichol's the head of the army. Yitzchak says to Avimelech, what are you coming for? You, you, you kicked me out. You people hate me. Now you come to me, why, why are you coming? Since you hate me, says Yitzchak. And Avimelech says, no, we see that God is with you. And we said, let's make a treaty between us. Let's make a treaty between us. And then he continues, of course, in Avimelech's style, you shouldn't do harm to us. It's always the other guy doing harm to him. It's almost comical. After all, we never, we never harmed you. We only did good. We sent you away in peace. That's Avimelech's definition of, of uh, deporting somebody. Kicking him out of the country is sending him away in peace. This is Avimelech. Okay, never changes. And then, fine. So uh, they leave. Fine. And then, the last verse number 33, after they leave, right? And it says, verse 32, that the servants of Yitzchak, after Rabbi Melech made his speech, and, and, and then Isaac makes for them a party, and they eat and drink together. So there's some kind of an agreement between them. And then in verse 32, on that very day, they say to Yitzchak, we have found water. Matzonu mayim. And they named that well after Avimelech leaves. The water they found, that well, they named it Shiva. Therefore is the place called Beersheba until this very day. So we have two stories about Beersheba. It doesn't make one word of difference if you think they're two different places or the same place. They're literally the same place, obviously. And what is the difference between the two stories? It's very interesting. The first Beersheba, Abraham's Beersheba, is named so because it says, Sham Nishba'ushnehem, there they both swore. So what that speaks to is Avram makes a deal with, with Avimelech. He has an accord with Avimelech, but it's a mutual accord. He, they swear to each other. They have a negotiation. Avram gives him Sheva Kvasot. But the place is called Beersheba because of the, the mutual uh, commitment. But when it comes to Yitzchak, there's something interesting that after Avimelech leaves, Avimelech leaves in chapter 26, he goes back to the land of the Philistines in chapter 26. By Yochui told me Shalom in verse number 31. And after he leaves, the servants say to Yitzchak, We have found water. And they named the place Shiva. 
Therefore, is the name is the place called Be'er Sheva, Adayom Mazeh. And what that speaks to is a fundamental difference between Avram and Yitzchak. Avram, the father of all nations, the Avamon Goyim, connects to the whole world. That's Avraham. Even to Avimelech. He even talks to Avimelech. He makes a treaty with Avimelech. They, they swear to each other. Yitzchak is a different personality. Yitzchak is not out to connect to the world. He doesn't want to harm anybody. Yitzchak is not to harms anybody. But Yitzchak is very separate. So the Beersheba is named not just not named for the treaty with each other or the, or the, the mutual oaths, but actually the story takes place of Beersheba after Abimelech leaves him. Abimelech leaves him, he's concerned, whatever. He doesn't want Yitzhak to harm him. <laughs> We've been so good to you. And after he leaves, then they find water and the place is called Shiva. Maybe you can find six prior wells in the story. Why is it called Shiva? Good question. But therefore is the place called Beersheba. So the two parallel Beersheba stories speak to a difference between Yitzchak and Abraham that will come to later with Yitzchak. He's very separate. He's not one who is reaching out to the world. He's not one who's trying to save the world. He's not one who's trying to convert the world. He's not one who's trying to bring God to the world. It's not Yitzchak. Yitzchak is different. Yitzchak is inside his own four cubits, one might say. And we'll see what that connects to, what, what qualities that, that, uh, that connects to. Um, let me say one more thing about Beersheba here. But before that, I'll just take a couple of more comments or questions if anybody wants to speak up. Then I want to say one more thing about Beersheba, which is the introduction to the story of Akedat Yitzchak that we'll start next time with Akedat Yitzchak. But there's something else about Beersheba at the end of chapter 21. Yes, I, I, maybe I, um, I just noticed that the word berit is here the first time used in a horizontal way between people. Before it was only between God and you know, prophets. Yes. So, uh, so I'm asking if that doesn't give us an indication about the status and the quality of Bathsheba, uh, also in relationship maybe with what you said last week uh, in, uh, in Shmuel, where you know, like a bit like Eli, Shmuel is a little bit blind. He doesn't rebuke his sons, and they are in Bathsheba. So um, I don't know. And also Isaac is somebody. He seems to go. I'm also yeah. The second question is uh, those two words, Bialhayroi and Bathsheba, appear both with Hagar the first time. So I'm just a bit puzzled if we should pick that up or not. Right. Well, and, what you're saying is true. In other words, the but we have elsewhere in the Bible. You have a, a bridge between people that we do have in, in Shmuel, you have it as well. I think you have it elsewhere. Uh, it means a bridge is simply a mutual, mutual commitment. I don't think it necessarily connects to God more than to the other person, but it's true that in Sefer Breshit, we have the a Brit, uh, in chapter 17, we have a Brit in chapter 50, we have a Brit with Noah between God and the world. So you have those three times. And now we have a bridge between people, mutual commitments. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just asking if maybe Beersheba comes to symbolize the goodwill between people, the, the, the ability to, to, to stabilize a relationship, especially when you're gay and you're living in a, in it's a possible place. that it does that, but I, I wanted to actually make a different suggestion. I, I have, I've come back to what you're suggesting, uh, whether it means that in general or not. 
but it functions in a different way in Sefer Breshit, which is actually very important for us. So let me just make this uh, comment, which is preliminary to the Akedah. The Akedah is chapter 22. The covenant, with a call it a covenant, the brit, the agreement, the arrangement, contract with Avimelech is the end of chapter 21. And as I had alluded to earlier, it says that Avimelech, um, Avram makes a point that this place, Beersheba, is my place. And they agree. And then it says that Avimelech took his general, Vayashuvu Eretz Plishtim, in verse number 32, at the end of chapter 21, which so he suggests that Beersheba is not part of Eretz Plishtim, because he goes back to Eretz Plishtim. But then we wonder about verse 33 and 34, because Avram plants a tree in Beersheba, cries out to the eternal God, and Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for many years, for a long time. But we just got finished saying that he doesn't live in the land of the Philistines, he lives in Beersheba. So is Beersheba in the land of the Philistines or is Beersheba separate from the Philistines? That's an important question. I raised that question in the context of the story of, of, of King David, who lives amongst the Philistines in the city called Siklag which on one hand is a Philistine city, and on the other hand, it's listed as the cities of, of the Israelites. And in fact, it, the Book of Shmuel makes the point that the kings of Israel often took residence in Ziklach. Israel. So it's an interesting parallel to Abraham and to uh, Abraham and David, of course. And the whole question of where is Beersheba in this particular text is it seen as part of the land of the Philistines or is it wholly separate from the land of the Philistines? But this leads us to a different question about Beersheba, which is the following question. And namely, what is the literary function of Beersheba? What is the significance of this place, Beersheba? And actually, Beersheba appears, apart from with Abraham and Yitzchak, Abraham here in chapter 21, and Yitzchak in chapter 26, but Beersheba appears two more places which are critical in this book. And that is in chapter 28 and in chapter 46. In chapter 28, it appears as the place from which Yaakov will leave the land and travel to, to, uh, to Haran. Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheba Haran. So it's the jumping off point. It's the place from which you leave to go elsewhere. And in the case of Yaakov, the elsewhere is, is exile. Yaakov leaves the land, and he's going to Haran, to Lavan, to Aram, etc. That's in chapter 28. And then we have another chapter in Book of Breshit, parallel to chapter 28. Someday we'll get there. Very interesting, exact parallel to chapter 28. And that, of course, is chapter 46. And in chapter 46, we have Yaakov, who has been told that Yosef is still alive. And Yaakov says at the end of 45, Yosef is alive. I want to see Joseph before I die. And therefore, he sets out in chapter 46, verse number one. By Yavo Be'er Shava, Yaakov goes with the whole family. By Yavo Be'er Shava, 
and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Okay, leaving out for now why the God of his father Isaac, we can spend, we will spend hopefully someday time on that, but here's the point. Beersheba in both of these instances is the place from which you leave. You go from Beersheba outside the land. In the case of Abraham, Beersheba is the place that you leave. Avram leaves Beersheba. He leaves Beersheba in chapter 22, verse number one and two. After these things, and God is testing Abraham, 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 here I am, says Abraham, and God commands Abraham, Avram is commanded to take the son, the one you love, Yitzchak, and bring him up as a sacrifice, where? On one of the mountains about which I will tell you, Asher Omar Elecha. So here too, Beersheba is the place that you leave. But there seems to be a difference between Abraham leaving Beersheba in chapter 21 and 22, and Yaakov leaving Beersheba in chapters 28 and chapter 46. So let me briefly, by way of introduction to the Akedah, which we'll get to in the next set of sessions, say something about this introduction. The question, of course, and we can't deal with this now, but we'll start next time with this question, namely, uh, what does what does it mean, achar hadvarim after these things? That's how the Akedah begins, after these things. And here there are four possibilities, and they're all good. Four good possibilities, and they don't contradict. Four different possibilities about after what things we're talking about. One of them, certainly, is the story we've been looking at lately, namely Yishmael, because we found all the parallels and contrasts between Yishmael's story and Hagar on one hand and Avram at the Akedah on the other. So clearly, after these things, connects to the Yishmael narrative. And that's what Rashi says. Rashi says, you, you want to study the Akedah, you have to look at Yishmael and the contrast between Yishmael on one hand and the Akedah on the other. That's for sure. On the other hand, however, what the Rashbam says, the great Pashtan, the Rashbam says, well, look, after these things, presumably, refers to what comes before. And what comes before is not Yishmael, because the story of Yishmael is concluded in verse 21 of chapter 21. But beginning in verse number 22 and to the end of the chapter, which is verse number 34, it's not about Yishmael at all. It's about Avimelech. It's about Avimelech, and he's coming to Avram to make a treaty, and the oath and Avram living in the land of the Philistines. That's the story that precedes the Akedah. So the Rashbam says, therefore, the best interpretation presumably is one in which after these things refers to what immediately precedes. That's the Rashbam. Fine. I think we can all accept that after these things logically makes sense that it refers minimally to what comes just before. Rashbam is completely logical. He's usually quite logical. 
The question, however, is what to make of that connection. So the Rashbam has one suggestion, suggests something about it. I must say, personally, I don't accept. I think it's, it can't be right. But I will get to the Rashbam next time, what, is, what, what he suggests the connection is. But I want to make a, a, I have two suggestions about what it is. One is a larger discussion and one is very brief. So let me stick to the brief one. And then next time we'll start with Rashi and the Rashbam about what Achar Hadvarim Ha'ela is, and then two other possibilities. And they're all good, I think. All four possibilities, they're not mutually exclusive. But let me make one point about the Akedah, just as an introduction to the Akedah. And then I'll stop at this point, which is the following. At the end of chapter 21, we are told that Abraham has a treaty. He has a brit with Abimelech. He secures this place called Beersheba. He, uh, we are told in verse number 33, he plants a tree. Vayita eshel beersheba, vayikrosham b'shem Hashem el olam. And he calls out, not just to God, but to the eternal God, el olam. And it's interesting, if you think back to the Avram narrative, back in chapter 12 and chapter 13, he sets up altars. And in two places, or twice in the Torah, in the same place, it says he calls out to God, and that is between Beit El and I, both in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, when he returns from Egypt, he goes back to the same place. I think it's verse four. And once again, so you have Abraham calling out in God's name, whatever that means. Could mean prayer. It could mean pronouncing or announcing God to the world. That's certainly a possibility. But there he builds an altar and he does it, a mizbeach. Over here, it's different. Over here, he plants a tree, oh. an eshel. And on top of that, he doesn't just call out, Hashem. he cries out, Hashem el olam to the God, to the everlasting God, to the eternal God. And what that suggests to me is that the life of Abraham, the life of Lech Lecha, he's a nomad. He travels from one place to the next. And what Avram is doing, and one of the motifs that runs through the Abraham narrative is, he was directed by God to go to the sacred place. And Avram is traveling to the sacred place. He goes to the land of Canaan. And one gets a sense at the end of chapter 21, because Abraham doesn't just build an altar, but rather a tree. Trees are there for a long time. There's a sense of permanence. He's there, Yamim Rabin. He cries out not just to God, but the El Olam. You get a sense that Abraham thinks he has finally, after all the journeying and the travel, he's found the place. He has found God's place. He has his place, Beersheba connected to an oath, which you take in God's name. So he believes, I think, the text suggests that he thinks this is the place. And chapter 22 begins by God saying to Abraham, go to the place that I will tell you. That the chosen place is never one the person chooses. Never. The chosen place is the one that God chooses. That's what the Chumash says later. It calls the holy place in the Chumash. It never assigns it a particular place, but it says, Hashem. The place that God has chosen. So here, by on one level, there's much more than this, but on one level, the previous story is about place. That's one of the themes. 
will Abraham discover the place? The Akeda will be the story in which Abraham discovers the sacred place within the sacred place, which he calls Hashem Yireh, which means the place that God sees or the place that God chooses. Only God chooses the place. So on one level, the link between the end of 21 and 22 is about the chosenness of the place, which is one of the main two themes in the entire Abraham narrative. So let's start with that. And I'll leave it at that for now. And the larger question, of course, is the story of the Akedah is a culminating story. It's God's last communication with Abraham. It's not the last story, but it is a culminating story. It's the last communication. The first was Lechacha in chapter 12. There's the Lechacha in 22. And after these things, so we have to look at the Akedah through the prism of the whole Abraham story and ask ourselves the question, after what things? Of course, the Rashbam is obviously correct on one level. Most likely, it connects to what immediately proceeds. And I mentioned one connection, and there's a much deeper one. But it doesn't mean that's the only interpretation. In fact, when we study the Akedah, there are four discrete, significant meanings of these words after these things. And they're all good. And they're all true. And they're all important. And we'll get to this next time. So I wanted to thank everybody for Rabbi Silva, next time is after Shavuos or after Sukkot? No, no, next time is after Shavuot, it's during the summer. After there's another group, another sessions, hopefully. This is a day addition. Sometimes I don't teach in the summer in the daytime. But this summer I want to continue in the daytime, at least to complete, start with the arcade, and we'll see how far we get. And after Sukkot, we continue with Jacob and Israel. And in addition to that, I did want to say that... Um, Next year, I plan to spend a fair amount of time on prayer. And um, actually, actually, there's a big project that I'm working on now. I've been approached by some people to do this, and I'm interested in it. <laughs> and um, it's a prayer. It's a, it's a set of classes about the biblical roots of prayer. And I want to combine that with, uh, with uh, music, with kind of interpretive music drawn from, from deep religious places, which are two. One is Hasidic music, and the other would be music of the uh, of the Eidot uh, Mizrach. Those are places so, where I think. You know, I'm sorry. Do you know when it will start? I'm just. Well, it won't be before Sukkot. I have to. I mean, I have a lot of work to do, and I plan to. <clears throat> it's a whole big project that I'm working on now, and I've been approached by some people, and uh, they want to fund it as well. So I'm in conversation, and we'll see. It's not an inexpensive project, but it's. Uh, Something I'm very interested in, and uh, that's in addition to the other stuff. So we'll see. But uh, that sounds great. You know who yeah. might want to participate in that is uh, Magda Fishman, the fabulous cantor over at Bene Torah in Florida, uh, and she is. This is her big thing, and she's fabulous. You probably know her, but no, I don't. I don't know, but I'm. Oh, Magda Fishman. Okay, yeah. got the name now. One of the best of the very best, as are you. I'm so grateful. Okay, thank, thank you very much. Uh, Looking forward uh, to learning with you. We have more programs. Michael, maybe you want to take over now. Uh, do you, uh, just one question. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you may want to answer it later. Uh, you said Avram is on, uh, is on his way of settling down and planting a tree. But the expression that is used is Vayogor, uh, not Vayeshev, Vayogor. That's uh, true. No, of course, because Avram, we know he's a gear. We know that the covenant is about the future generations. 
And that's throughout the whole Avram story. He's, he's always called the Ger. Even when he built the Beri Sarah, he says it straight out. Even as he's one secure place in the land, Achuzad Keber, he calls himself a Ger. Ger v'toshav anochim ochem in chapter 23. That's for sure. But my point is, he thinks that he, he has symbolically secured the place. Yeah, I understand. Which is right. not, which is not, which is, in, which is incorrect. The Be'er Sheva right. is not the place. The right. place is the one that God will choose. Hashem right. Yudah, not, not, not the human being. Michael, what do you right. want to say? Sure. Uh, so... First of all, thank you again to Rabbi Silber for this really wonderful series, to all of you for being here and participating and asking questions and learning with us. Uh, we have a few programs coming up this week in the lead up to Shavuot. We have a special three-part series on the Pew team of Shavuot that we're very excited about. Uh, so all of these are uh, from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern time. On Tuesday, we have uh, Dr. Tzvi Novik, teaching about Yitziv Pitgam. On Wednesday, we have Dr. Laura Lieber talking about Akdamut. And on Thursday, we have Yitz Landis talking about Spartak Azharot for Shavuot. So we will be having all of those this week. You can get information about those at drija.org slash classes. We are also, uh, as, as Rabbi Silber said, we are going to be doing a few things over the summer, including a continuation of this class after Shavuot and a few, hopefully, series during the weeknights for people who wanna be learning with us. But a lot of our attention will be focused on our summer immersive program, so the Dr. Beth Samuels High School program and our summer kollel. We do still have room in both of those programs. So if you know a person who would be interested, either a young woman in high school who would wanna spend a month learning Torah on a, uh, on a summer camp campus in a immersive bubble out in nature, uh, or someone who wants to be doing high level online kollel learning with us, please, please feel free to direct them to our website. You can get information on our immersive programs there and we would be really happy to uh, be working with as many people as possible this summer. So again, you can find information about some of those things at, uh, at, at drisha.org slash classes uh, and, and also under our immersive programs information on the website as well. So those programs are under drisha.org slash summer. Uh, so please feel free to, to, to take a look at that. And if you know anyone, feel free to put us in touch. We will have information about the continuation of Rabbi Silver's class. Hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll be putting up registration links so that people can get that information once we've finalized all the details. But in the meantime, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out at inquiry at drisha.org or fraud at drisha.org. And we'll be happy to help answer any questions that you might have. Thank you, Thank you Michael. Thank you for your help during the whole series. I did want to just to say one last word that the three-part series on Shavuot, Yitziv, Pitgam, Akdamot, and the Azharot, is an unusual opportunity to learn these things because they've almost never looked at, and they are the core liturgy of, of the of the of the of the Shavuot, very uh, maybe underappreciated or not some people don't even know about this, and these are very interesting uh, poems and 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 uh, and and texts. The Azharot, they're all interesting. So it's really an opportunity to learn something new for a lot of people. Uh, we may not know a lot about them or know very little about them, and a good preparation for the Shavuot holiday as well. So it's 
I think a terrific uh, three-part series should be great.